0: I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Hebrews and we are looking this morning at verses 26 through 31, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31. So having addressed what he saw as the habit of some of his readers, Neglecting to meet together, verses 24 and 25, the author calls attention to an even more serious tendency he saw among his readers. And that was willfully, out of willfully, and deliberately sinning. And in the sharpest of terms, he warns them as follows in verses 26 through 31, It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And there has been the question as to whether the author was referring to a specific sin as he issued these words of warning, or was he referring to sins of any kind? A related question is, was he warning unbelievers or was he warning professing believers in Christ? And based on the overall context of this epistle to the Hebrews, it appears he was warning professing believers regarding a specific sin. We always, whenever we are reading the scriptures, we always want to read in context. And throughout these studies, we have been seeing The author warning his Jewish Christian readers of the danger, the great danger there is of retreating from their profession of faith in Christ. As we learned in previous studies, some of them appeared to have been doing so because of the pressures of persecution. Having come to an understanding of Jesus Christ as a true high priest, as the sacrifice for sin, They had turned from Judaism with its temple sacrifices and rituals, committing themselves to Christ and to the fellowship of his church. And yet in the face of fierce persecution, of fierce opposition for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, some of them were now renouncing or were being tempted to renounce what they had come to know as the truth about Christ. Not only were they abandoning faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were giving up, as we saw last week, the whole matter of church attendance. The whole language and tenor of verses 26 through 31 suggests that for the writer of the Hebrews, this sin of repudiating their faith in Christ was not one of ignorance. It was not simply one of ignorance. This sin was not one that was simply a matter of what we would call unintentional sin. And furthermore, the tone of his warning suggests that the author doesn't regard persecution as a reasonable excuse, as a mitigating factor for their drawing back with respect to their profession of faith in Christ. For the author, any departure from Christ... Any casting away of confidence in him constitutes willful, deliberate sin. So let's look carefully at the arguments he presents regarding this matter of sinning deliberately, of sinning willfully by their diminishing commitment to Christ, if not their total departure from Christ. And the question is, what was it that made their sin such a serious matter? To begin with, note his opening words. Here's what he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately. And here we see that what made the sin of these professing Christians so serious, so heinous, we would say, was the fact that it was one that was being committed continually. As indicated by the present active participle of the Greek verb, they were sinning over and over and over in the way they were treating, in the way they were regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. The suggestion here is that despite constant warnings, constant persuasions against doing so, they were set on a path of continual retreat from Christ with a view to returning to the rituals and ceremonies of the Mosaic law as a way of finding salvation from God. Second, the thing that made their sin deliberate and hence egregious was that theirs was a sin against the clear light of the word of God. It was a sin against light. The light of God's word. Not only were they sinning repeatedly, but according to the B part of verse 26, if you look at verse 26, he says there, they were doing so after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That is to say the truth about Christ, the truth of the gospel, the truth regarding the person and work of Christ as Specifically in the book of Hebrews, the divinely appointed high priest and savior as the one whose death on the cross constitutes that one and only sufficient sacrifice for sin. The writer characterizes the sin of his readers as willful, as deliberate, because it was one that was constantly being committed even in the face of what was for them clear, vivid knowledge of the truth concerning Christ. And he particularly conveys this point by the intensified word he uses for knowledge in verse 26. The word he uses for knowledge is not simply the normal gnosis, but epignosis. The word speaks of true, full knowledge, not a mere superficial knowledge, but of what we would refer to as in-depth knowledge. As one grammarian explains, the writer by the use of this word gives us to understand that he means by it not only a shallow historical notion about the truth, but a living, believing knowledge of it which has laid hold of a man and fused him into union with itself. These people knew the truth. And the idea here suggested by the reader was that they had full knowledge of the truth, specifically concerning who Jesus was. So that again, what we have here, my friends, is not simply a matter of sinning out of ignorance or of sinning because of momentary weakness, momentary forgetfulness of the Word of God, but here we have a case of persons sinning, we would say, with their eyes wide open. And this shows the stubbornness, the determination with which these individuals were sinning against Christ and the truth of the gospel. My friends, God does not take seriously two willful, calculated, deliberate sins, continual sins, God does not take kindly to such sins. He takes them very seriously. And if you want to get some idea as to how God regards willful, continual, calculated sins, we only have to look at his word to see what God thinks, how God regards such sins. He regards such sins as acting in defiance against him. In Numbers chapter 15 verse 30, for, in, for instance, he speaks of those sitting in such a manner as acting with a high hand. In Numbers 15 31, he deems it as despising his word. And notice here in our text, how does God regard this matter of sinning willfully, of sinning deliberately again and again and again, even after receiving knowledge of the truth? Notice there in verse 27, he regards those who are committed to that kind of sinning as the adversaries. The word signifies one who stands in hostility and opposition to another. It speaks of one with a cross purposes with another so that to be sinning deliberately against God, to be sinning willfully and knowingly, to be sinning continually against his truth, is to be taking an inimical, hostile posture toward him. It is to be taking the part of an enemy against God. It is to be living in rebellion and revolt against God and against his will. That's how God regards the sin of willful, calculated sin. Second, to be sinning deliberately and continually against God is, notice the B part of verse 28, it is to trample upon his son. It is to trample upon the Son. Here's what he says, verse 28b. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The imagery here, my friends, is one of scorn and contempt. As in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, remember what our Lord Jesus said? He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, it's good for nothing but to be thrown outside and trampled underfoot the feet of men. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Cast out your pearls before swines, lest they turn around and lacerate you. They trample upon that word. God is saying here, my friends, that when professing Christians are given to willful, calculated sins continually and without remorse, that is tantamount to treating his son with disdain. My friends, the heinousness of this particular sin, of treating the Son of God with contempt by sinning deliberately, can only be seen against the backdrop of what what the writer of the Hebrews said concerning who Jesus is. If you go back to the very opening of this epistle, remember how he characterized the Lord Jesus. Remember how that in chapter 1, verse 1, he set forth Christ as the highest and ultimate revelation of God. Because he says, God who in sundry hundred times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers through the prophets, had in these last days spoken to us through Son. Not through prophets, no longer through dreams, through visions, but he has spoken through the consummate expression of his revelation, his Son. The Lord Jesus is presented in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 of the book of Hebrews as heir and creator of all things. He is presented as the radiance of the glory of God. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 13, is the God who is to be worshipped and adored so that to willfully and continually sin against the truth of the word of God concerning who Christ is, is an affront to God, is an affront to the divine Son of God who died as a sacrifice for sins. God says here, listen, through his word, he says that when. We sin deliberately, knowingly, calculatedly, again and again and again, without remorse, with our eyes wide open, as it were. We are showing utter disdain for Christ. We are trampling him underfoot. The and then, thirdly, notice what he says here. If you look at the C part of verse 29, to be sinning deliberately and continually against God is to desecrate the atoning work of Christ. Here's what he says, That has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The blood of the covenant, what's that? The blood of the covenant, as you know, as we have seen in past studies, concerns the truth that through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, the new covenant was established by God, whereby sins are taken away and forgiven through Christ and through his blood, of the covenant, one is sanctified according to our text. Which tells us that the design of Christ's death, because that's what the word means, sanctified means to set apart, the design of Christ's death was to set us apart from sin, a life of sin, unto a life of worship and devotion to God. And if that is the case, my friends, then what the writer is saying here is that to be ever sinning deliberately, willfully, calculatedly is to deny the saving, purifying claims of his blood, is to treat his death as commonplace, is to treat it with scant regard, is what he's saying. And in that way, he says we are desecrating, we are dishonoring His atoning, redeeming work. My friends, that's the most serious offense. For to be sinning deliberately and continually against God is to insult the Holy Spirit. Is to insult the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in the deep part of verse 29. And has outraged the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Grace. Why? Because he is the one who mediates or dispenses to us all the benefits and blessings of the saving work of Christ. That's why he's called the Spirit of Grace. And to treat with contempt the Spirit of God by continually giving oneself to a life of sin, willful, calculated, deliberate sins, is in fact to repudiate the grace of God, thereby insulting and dishonoring the Spirit of God. The word he uses is the word from which we get our English word hubris. He says, We have outraged, we have, as it were, committed hubris against the Spirit of God. Hubris, what is hubris? It is what we would describe as wanton insolence and arrogance toward and total disrespect for others or for what is deemed morally acceptable. In other words, God is saying here through his word that when one, whether even, particularly in the context here, a professing Christian is... Sitting knowingly, willfully, calculatedly, continually, without remorse, then what is happening is that that person is acting with hubris against the Spirit of God. He has outraged the Spirit of God. He has been insolent to the Spirit of God. So, heedless of sin as a way of life without regard for the shed blood of Christ is to massively insult the Spirit of God. Also, because you see, it is the office of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God teaches. In fact, by Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, it is the function, it is the office of the Holy Spirit to glorify and magnify Christ. Throughout the epistle, you can see that this sin of treating lightly the work of Christ is one that the writer has been addressing again and again and again. What we have here, and what he has said before, really underscores the point that I'm making, that he's talking here about a specific kind of sin. He's talking about Christians, professing Christians, who they claim to know Christ, they claim to be saved, and yet... By their lies, they are actually denying him. These first century Christians, how were they denying Christ? In the face of persecution, they came under such pressure. They were retreating, they were carring, they were going back to Judaism out of fear for their lives. And the writer is saying you cannot do that because to do that is to insult the spirit of grace. You are sinning willfully and deliberately against the no truth concerning the person and work of Christ. You can't do that, is what he's saying. And throughout the epistle, you can see that this sin of treating lightly the work of Christ is one that the writer has been addressing again and again, as I said. In chapter 2, verse 1, he alluded to it as drifting away from the things we have heard. Remember what he said? He says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Why the more earnest heed? He says, lest at any time we should drift from them we can drift from the word of God. We can drift away from Christ even through the pressures of life. We can drift away from Christ through the allurements of the world. We can drift away from Christ through disagreements, disgruntlements we have with one another in the church. Later he's going to say in chapter 12, he says, careful lest there be any of you an root of bitterness. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, he speaks of it as hardening the heart against the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, he characterizes it as Falling away, remember when we we're in chapter six, he characterizes this treatment of Christ, whereby one is not fully standing up for Christ, but is always retreating from Him, always denying Him, always sinning against the light of the truth concerning who Christ is. He characterizes it as falling away and crucifying once again the Son of God after having been enlightened, after having tasted the heavenly gifts and shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, the C part of verse 26, all the way through verse 31, if you'll glance at those verses as we go through them, these verses present for us the dire consequence of sinning willfully and deliberately against the light of the gospel. And once again, we're going to come to unbelievers, but here he's talking, based on our reading of Hebrews, is addressing professing believers. And before we look at these verses, let me say that in an attempt to not compromise the doctrine of eternal security of the believer in Christ. Some commentators regard these verses as teaching not eternal judgment on false believers for willful continual sinning, but divine justice meant for believers who keep on sinning willfully. So there are two views. There are some who say that these are, these are believers in Christ. They're true believers. They're eternally secure. But it's just that they're sinning willfully again and again and again. And you have another group of commentators that say, well, this is referring to professing believers who are sinning again and again again, again and again and again and again. And again, and again. <laughs> I'm not a good fast talker. <laughs> And so that what we have here in verses 26 through 31 are the dire eternal consequences of judgment of the wrath of God upon such. Which do I take? I take the latter. I'm suggesting to you, beloved, that this is not referring to, it's not referring to true believers in Christ. And I'm going to say it toward the end, but I think I should say it at this point. Lest there be any who might be disturbed and worried. You say, look, I have sins in my life or a particular sin in my life. I'm struggling and I'm falling and I'm failing. I'm falling and, and I'm not having victory. Is this referring to me? And I would say no, not necessarily. Because what the writer is talking about here, and we know, don't we? We know whenever we are struggling and whenever we fall into temptation, what happens after? How do we feel? We feel what? Miserable. We feel sick. The writer is talking here about people who are sinning with their eyes wide open. They take the word for granted. They take the grace of God for granted. And they just sin. If it's convenient to deny Christ, get by. They do it without batting an eyelid. Well, business is business. And if you are to get on in this life, this Jesus thing not working. So they have here their church life, their spiritual life. But when they leave church, they go out into the world. It's a different business. They can put Christ on the back burner. And they can side with the world, be cool. And they say, well, I'm Christian. At least I go to church. That's what the writer is talking about. And what we're going to see here in this passage is that he's talking specifically about some of his readers who were on the verge of going back, renouncing Christ, or had already done so. Um, So those who hold the idea that these are true believers, in effect, they go on the assumption that once a person professes faith in Christ, watch this, the assumption of those who hold that these are true believers, they go on the assumption that once a person professes faith in Christ, he or she is eternally secure regardless of how he or she lives. Bible doesn't teach that because it's not simply the profession of faith according to the word of God because what Jesus says he says many will say to me he says not everyone who says Lord Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he that does the will of my father many will say to me in that day Lord Lord have we not prophesied in your name have we not done this have we not done that and then I'll say to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of iniquity they were professors of faith in Christ. This is a subject we have dealt with at length in previous studies in the book of Hebrews. In the interest of time, we can't go over those materials, but I invite you to at least go back, and you can listen to studies on chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 6, where we argued extensively that the writer was warning, professing believers, careful, see to it that you do not miss out on entering God's rest. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Some, it is possible, it is possible for one to profess Christ and to have the appearance of following him for a long time, doing things that Christians do, not even knowing themselves to be not true, not saved, and yet, in the end, they fall away. Not saved. So listen back to those portions. But what I at least want to show you here in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 are indications that what the writer has in view is the eternal wrath of God that awaits false-professing Christians who are given to a life of sinning willfully and deliberately. And I would add to that without remorse. God has laid down regarding how He takes seriously this matter of willful sin. So the question is, what indicators are there in the passage? What indicators are there in the passage that he's referring to such persons as coming under the eternal wrath of God? Not the first consequence, not the first consequence he cites for those who go on sinning deliberately, for those who go on sinning willfully against the light of divine truth. Notice in the C part of verse 26, he suggests this: "For that for such, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, for if we go on sinning deliberately. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What is he talking about? For the writer, this is not really a new teaching. This was, in fact, a truth known back in the Old Testament that willful, deliberate sins, for willful, deliberate sins, there was no sacrifice. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 22 to 31, we find there a whole set of regulations God had laid down concerning how to deal with intentional and unintentional sins. There were different kinds of sacrifices, different kinds of offerings that were to be offered in the case of unintentional sins, not so the case with willful sins. We read, for example, in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 to 31, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his covenant, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. That's why according to Numbers chapter 21, verse 14, a murderer was to be executed even if he fled to the tabernacle for refuge. Here's what he says, but if a man willfully attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. That he may die. Deuteronomy 17, verse 12 the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Here in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26, to say that if we go on sinning deliberately after we have received knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, is to, in effect, make the point that the saving, sacrificial work of Christ will be of no profit, will be of no benefit to those who are given to such kind of sinning. And why is that? How do we explain this idea that if we continue to sin, that willfully deliver that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin? Because, you see, the very nature of the sacrificial work of Christ was, according to Hebrews 1 verse 3, to purge our sins. According to Hebrews 9 verse 26, to put away our sins so that to decidedly and definitively persist in sin is to ultimately reject the one and only means of coverage and protection from the wrath of God. Christ died to put away sin, Christ died to purge sin. Here's a person who knows the truth, who keeps on sinning, who says, "Listen, at least God will forgive me." There's no true remorse. It is a way of life. that person continually rejects the truth of God by the way he or she lives. What the writer is suggesting here is that that is a total contradiction to the purpose for which Christ died. Christ died to purge us of our sins. Christ died to put away our sins. And if we keep on doing that, we are actually cutting ourselves off the one and only means whereby we can have eternal life and be spared the judgment of God. He says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. How are we going to deal with sins? How are we going to be protected from the wrath of God except through the sacrifice of Christ? If we keep trampling upon that, if we keep spitting in the face of the Spirit of God, he he says there's no more sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, such a person is what? Crucifying again the Son of God and is putting him to an open shame, remember? And to be in that condition is therefore to be in a condition of apostasy. That is a condition of having fallen away from the faith, which betrays the fact that one never was truly saved in the first place. That's the idea. A second indicator that the writer is referring not simply to divine chastisement, Of believers, true believers, but to the eternal wrath of God on false professors of the faith who persist in sin is seen in verse 27. And there the writer speaks of what will be for them, quote, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Man, that doesn't sound like divine chastisement for believers in Christ. He says, a fearful expectation of judgment, to begin with, true believers in Christ, watch this, true believers in Christ can never be destined for a fearful expectation of judgment. How do we know that? 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Says the hymn writer, no condemnation, now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. No, we do not have the prospect of divine judgment. Why? Because those who truly come to Christ by faith and are resting in him, trusting to him in him and are committed to him will never be lost. Next, look at the phrase. Here's what he says. A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Does that sound like divine chastisement upon believers? I think not. He says, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. More often than not, when scripture makes reference to the fire of God, the fire of God's fury, what is in view is his wrath is wrath not upon his people but upon the ungodly cited here in verse 27 as his adversaries as in Zephaniah 1 verse 8 in the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah 3 verse 8. For my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That's not for believers. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 8, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know God, know not God, and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the language of the wrath of God upon his adversaries. And Then a third indicator that the writer is not referring simply to Christians receiving divine chastisement, but he's referring to the eternal wrath that's in store for false professors of the faith who persist in sin is seen in verses 28 and 29. And what the writer does in these verses is to use a rhetorical device known as arguing from the lesser to the greater. Here's his argument. Let's watch this carefully. Please listen carefully. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The writer is addressing here, professing believers in Christ. He says, anyone who died under the law of Moses, anyone who despised, set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot, foot, the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Now, beyond the punishment of physical death for those who despise the law of Moses, there is implied in verse 29 a far greater punishment a far greater punishment for those who despise the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See it in the rhetorical question. How much worse punishment. And here's why the phrase, here's why the phrase in verse 29, a, worse, a much worse punishment is a seeming allusion to the eternal wrath of God, not just physical death. Let me illustrate to show that he's not referring to just physical death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, as well as 1 Corinthians 11 through 32 32, believers in Christ may suffer divine chastisement in the form of physical death. True believers in Christ. True believers in Christ may suffer the judgment of God by way of divine chastisement by way of physical death. God simply takes the life of a sinning believer. So in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, here was a man in the Corinthian church who was living in open sin. The church would not even do anything about it. He was living in open sin, open sexual immorality. And Paul's counsel to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, was this, he says, Deliver this man to Satan the destruction of the flesh why here it comes so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord do i believe in eternal security yes i believe if one is truly saved and if one my friend is living in sin and fails to take care of it god has his way of saving and preserving his own and he can do that through physical death here's the other passage Remember the Lord's Supper, the order of the Lord's Supper? Here at the Corinthian church, once again, were, some of them were partaking of the Lord's Supper in what Paul describes as an unworthy manner. Not discerning the body and blood of Christ. And here's his warning to those who were coming to the table with unconfessed sins. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty 30-32, This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we, are, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. Listen to verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, once again, God will deal with his sinning children if they refuse to deal with sin in their lives. God well, send chastisement in the form of physical death. He will take their lives. Some have referred to it as an untimely death. Now listen, beloved. Here's the point. You say, what's the point that you're making? Here's the point. The fact that a sinning believer may incur the loss of his or her physical life by way of divine chastisement with respect to the prospect of being saved in the end And that despising the law of Moses also incurred the penalty of loss of life, physical death, suggests then that the quote unquote, how much worse punishment mentioned in verse 29 has to be, has to be way more than punishment by way of physical death. Those who died despising the law of Moses died without mercy. And they hand up two or three witnesses of how much more, what he says, how much worse. You ask the question, what could be worse than physical death? I tell you, you know eternal death, eternal judgment, the eternal wrath of God. So it clearly seems that what the writer has in view is in fact judgment in the form of eternal death. Death in the form of eternal Damnation. In fact, here's what appears with the clinching argument for this position. Verse 31, here's what he says. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. What he's saying, listen, he's saying, in other words, do not play around with God. It's a fearful thing. In view of the... In view here, beloved, is the horrifying, dreadful, consuming wrath of God, the eternal judgment of God that comes upon a soul who continually rejects Christ without remorse. Note further the closing argument of the writer in verses 38-39. Which statement clearly indicates that he is referring not to true believers in Christ, but to apostate, false believers in Christ who make light of sin. Here's what he says. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, here's what he says. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve your souls it's clear it's a warning the writer is seeing in the midst of the church of his day professing believers who once came a to of faith in Christ, they were with Christ, but in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, for some reason, they decided it's not worth it. They decided to leave the fellowship of the church. They decided to no longer walk with Christ, or they were on the verge of doing that. And the writer is warning, and he says, listen, if you keep on willfully, deliberately, sinning against truth, against the light of God's word, there will no longer be sacrifice for sin. Only a fearful expectation of judgment which will consume the adversaries. Let me make an application here as we close, beloved, to deliberately sinning in general. Whether the writer has in view deliberate sinning in a specific area or deliberate sinning in general, whether he's referring to believers or unbelievers, it doesn't matter because here's the point. Either way, Willful, calculated sins, continual sins over and over again without regard for God, without regard for the gospel, is equally destructive. Is equally destructive. For the Word of God teaches that there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. All of this, my friends, should serve as a warning. It should serve as a sobering warning to those who assume the following attitude. Because the Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer, I can always sin and ask God for forgiveness. Because once saved, always saved. (laughs) To do that is to deceive oneself, because here's what the Word of God teaches. The Bible says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, don't you know, if you're practicing, if you're continually giving yourself to sin, you're a servant of sin, and he says the wages of sin is death. And so given the seriousness of continual, willful, calculated sin, it's no wonder, it's no wonder, the psalmist, David, could pray as he did in Psalm 19, verse 13. Remember his prayer in Psalm 19, verse 13. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. He says there, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So once again, by way of qualify as we close, let me say here, lest any be hopelessly terrified. Lest any be wondering. Lest any be worried. Listen, I'm struggling with sin. I I, I really want to have victory over sin. And I keep falling. I keep failing. Let me say this. If you sincerely, desirously, are serious about sin, here's the point. that you are failing, you are failing. This is not referring to you. This is referring to someone, once again, as I said, who, in fact, let's use the illustration. Later on, he's going to use the example of Esau. Remember Esau? Who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Remember how Esau went with regard to that sacred... Thing called the birthright. He says, what, what, what use is this birthright to me? I, I'm hungry. <laughs> He's talking about people who are willfully calculated continually as a way of life, reject Christ and the truth about Christ, the truth about the gospel. There's a sense in which we could say that whenever you and I sin, it's willful. Willful from the standpoint that it involves our wills, we choose to sin, but that's not, he's not talking about the ordinary run-of-the-mill kind of sinning, where we sin out of weakness, we sin, you know, and, and we feel terrible after sinning, he's talking about willful sin. You see how we keep repeating it, because that's what we want to get across. We don't want somebody leaving today worried, boy, there's no hope for me. Listen, there's hope in Christ as long as we are looking to Him, we are leaning on Him, we are trusting in Him, we are looking away from ourselves, we are hating sin. God. Because of the fallenness, the sinfulness of our flesh, we'll always be susceptible to sin. We'll sin, we'll sin again at some point or another, again, yes. Furthermore, we need to note that our text does that have in view those who temporarily backslide, struggle with sin, or lose their fervency for Christ. It's very important we note that. What our text is referring to is the kind of sinning that is done continually, the kind of sin that is done flagrantly, without even the slightest twinge of remorse, without even the slightest twinge of conscience. The text is referring to premeditated sins, to willful, calculated sins in which one has no regard for the Lord and his word. It's referring to a lifestyle of continually and calculatedly denying the Lord, defying his word. You see, it's one thing to be overtaken by sin through weakness or sheer ignorance. It's quite another thing to sin presumptuously. God hates that. You're struggling this morning. You're weary and you are discouraged because of sin. Here's the good news. As a believer in Christ, 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Indeed, Psalm 130, verse 4, assures us that there is forgiveness with God. That's wonderful. That's glorious. In closing, God's purpose in salvation is not to save us in our sins, but rather it is to save us from our sins. Matthew 21, for he shall save his people from their sins. To be living in sin, knowingly and calculatedly, to have no remorse, to be ever drifting from Christ, is to be in a state of apostasy. And that's why We need to follow what the writer of Hebrews says. That's why we need to be encouraging one another. Why? Lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We need, that's why we need fellowship. That's why we need the church. That's why we need the word of God. That's why we need the means of grace. Amen.